morning, everybody. How you doing today? Good. A few of us are doing really well. That was awesome. Um, well, if you're visiting with us today, my name is Tommy. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Mars Hill, and you've joined us as we're working through the book of Acts, and we're in Acts chapter 3, going to finish up this chapter today. Now, as we were going into the book of Acts, um, you know, reading the book of Acts and just kind of refamiliarizing um, the, the lay of the land with the book of Acts before we started studying this book, um, I got to this passage and it hit me differently than it had ever hit before. And as I was reading through it, I thought, man, it would be really, really cool to get to teach that passage. And here I am. And so that worked out extraordinarily well. Um, there are just things in this that I see. You guys know that the word of the Lord is living and breathing, right? And so every time you read through the Bible, have you noticed how you can read the exact same set of scriptures, and sometimes there's something in that that leaps off the page at you differently and speaks to where you are, and it like encourages you differently? Well, as we're going through the book of Acts, there were a lot of those that did that to me, but this is one of them. And so if you're visiting with us, we've been working through Acts now for a couple of months, and so far... Um, we know that we've seen the death, the burial, and the resurrection, and now the book of Acts is turning the page, that we see what is now happening, and we're seeing the birth of the church, and we talked about how this book is very often called the Acts of the Apostles, right, or the Acts of the Holy Spirit, and those are both true, but the argument that we've made is that we're actually seeing the continuation of the acts of Jesus, that we're still seeing the ministry of Jesus fulfilled, his location has just changed. And with that in mind, what that's going to do is bring a new emphasis to what we're going to see today and what we're going to see actually the rest of this book. And so we started this book, we saw the Holy Spirit given at Pentecost, and we see how that hearkened back to Mount Sinai, right? That at Sinai, we saw the law of God written on a stone tablet, but in Pentecost, we see the law of God written on the heart, right? That we see the Holy Spirit actually come, and instead of just coming upon people in power like we see in the Old Testament, we actually see an indwelling of the Holy Spirit and those that who would receive respond to Christ. And so we live in a state where the Holy Spirit is constantly dwelling with us. And then we saw the immediate evidence of that, where we see this first sermon empowered by the Holy Spirit. Remember that they were petrified of what was going on. They were afraid. They were in the upper room hiding. And then all of a sudden we see the power of the Holy Spirit come and they're out in the streets preaching the gospel. And there's these signs and there's these sounds and all of these things happening. And then we moved from there to see how the church was living at that time, right? We saw that they were giving to each other and selling their possessions as they had need. And there's this sense of selflessness being laid out within the church. And we see that beautiful example of how we're supposed to live today. And then last week, we moved into the passage that we're going to finish up today, Acts chapter 3 where we see that a lame beggar is at Solomon's portico, Solomon's porch, Solomon's colonnade, whatever word you want to use there. And he's begging for alms. And Peter and John come by and he asks for alms and they see him. They look at him. They see who he is. And they say, I don't have anything money-wise to give you, but what I do have, I'll give you in the name of Jesus. Get up and walk. And he gets up. And he walks, he's leaping, he's praising God, and that is where we are today. I know that in our teaching, we're separated by a week. 
But in your mind, you need to think this is immediately following, because if you don't see that, you're going to lose some of the context. Like this is exactly as that happened. This is real time as that's unfolding. This isn't an hour later, a day later, a week later. This is unfolding at that time. And so with that in mind, let's dive into verse 11 and see what the Lord's word has for us today. Verse 11 says, while he clung, this is the healed man now. We no longer get to call him the lame beggar. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk? So when I look at how this section starts, there's something that actually grabbed my attention. It's those first couple of words, while he clung to Peter and John, while he held on to them. And you start thinking about this. Why would he be hanging on to them? I mean, the, the logical answer is he has been unable to walk for, you know, 40 years. His, uh, his muscles have atrophied. He's not strong enough to get up and walk. But that's not the picture that Scripture paints for us, is it? That's not it at all. Because last week when we looked, we saw in Acts 3, through, 3, 7 through 8, the description of this man. And listen to this. This is who he is now. As he took him by the right hand, he raised him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong and leaping. He stood up and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. This doesn't sound like a man that needs assistance to walk. And so you start asking the question, why would it start with this? Why would it show that he is clinging to him? And there's a few things that we could think. You know, maybe it's out of a sense of gratitude. I mean, wouldn't you be thankful? Wouldn't you have gratitude toward people that just offered you that gift? I mean, for me, this really, really like struck home for me because if you ever see me walking in the mall or walking anywhere, or walking down the street or wherever I'm going, and I'm holding on to my wife's hand or I've got her pulled close, that's gratitude. She did not have to marry me. She could have done so much better. And so I, out of a sense of gratitude, I cling to her. And so this is a real picture for me. And I'm like, you know what? I could see that. Something you did not deserve, something you did not earn, something you can't even explain happened. I'm clinging to that, right? Uh, and, and so it could have been that. Um, it, it could have been so many other things. Uh, but I think that one of the pictures that's painted here comes with, what's fo with what follows, right? Because what Peter says is the people ran together to them greatly amazed. The people ran to them greatly amazed. Now, there could have been some fear mixed in this too, right? I picture like a star walking out on the, the street, like if Taylor Swift were to walk out in downtown, right? And so that would be intimidating. And so I could see that. But this detail here, the people ran to them amazed. I think what's happening here is that there is this connection with what has occurred in his life and what is occurring painting a broader picture that we're going to see as Peter unfolds his sermon. There's something else there that we don't see yet. And what I see in it is I see clinging as like a sense of belonging. 
I mean, think, think about who this man was before. He had other people in his life, right? We found out last week that people brought him and left him, and, and, right? He has other people in his life so that he could get to the temple in order to beg for alms. And so we know that he had other people in his life. And scripture doesn't say this, but for me, I almost picture that, that he may have felt that this is the first time that he ever really found his place. It's almost like Peter and John might have truly seen him for the first time ever. He may have like felt seen for the first time. Does that make sense? You know, people can look at you and you not feel seen. And so I almost think that it's like this picture of being brought into a family, to belonging, to be being brought alongside of. And I think that scripture may be painting that picture for us. Again, I'm taking a little liberty here because it doesn't say directly, but I see that. I see him belonging. I see him connected But as much as as that, I see it connected to what he says about the crowd, right? Think about that just a minute. The man is clinging to Peter and John. The crowd's attention is on Peter and John. But what we find out is that their attention is in the wrong place. Because look at what's said. He says, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at at us as though by our own power or piety, we made him walk. What Peter is doing is he's taking this situation where the attention, where the direction, where the focus is on what happened through their words and the response of the man by faith. He's taking this physical thing and he's pointing the attention to where it actually belongs to Jesus. You see that? It has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with this man. It has nothing to do with what you saw occur here. It has everything to do with the person of Christ. It has everything to do with clinging to him. And so here's what we have to understand about what's happened so far. It's that the purpose of the miracle hasn't actually been fulfilled yet. You may say, wait a minute. The man's up leaping and, uh, leaping and walking. That's plenty miracle, right? If that happened today, we would break out in testimony service and it would probably sound something like this. Hey, I don't know what happened. I was lame and I went to a prayer service with brother John and pastor Peter and they prayed over me. And all I know is I jumped up and I started running. Praise be to God. And that's where we would go with this. And there's nothing wrong with that. But what we have to understand is that the crowd that was there was totally amazed but they needed to hear the message of the gospel through that. Does that make sense? That was the miracle, is that they had the opportunity to hear the truth of who Jesus actually is. And that had not been fulfilled yet. And Peter saw that, Peter understood that, and Peter took that opportunity to begin to share the gospel because Peter knew what the crowd actually needed. They didn't need to see another magic show. They didn't need to see. Uh, uh, it, they didn't need to see anything. What they needed to see was the power of God pointing to who His Son really is. And that's the miracle that we see here. Because you see, Peter knew what was going to be penned later in Romans ten seventeen. He understood this. It says, "So faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ." 
And I think that already in this passage, like it gives us a couple of things to chew on, like before we even get going good. Um, I, I think that it makes us think about how we seek the move of God. You know, the Bible tells us to bring petitions before him to let our needs be known. You absolutely should. You should do that. The Bible calls us to. We have access to almighty God. Seek him. But here's the thing. When he moves, make sure you give proper testimony. There's a massive difference in saying, I don't understand this. There is no explanation for what has happened versus saying there's only one explanation for what happened. Those are totally different things. That we make sure that we seek God's move. And when God moves, we give testimony of that. And you may be sitting in this room right now saying, I don't, I don't have a miracle in my life to give testimony to. If you say that, maybe your view of miracle is a little narrow. Here's why. The fact that I was lost, a sinner, separated from God, severed from my creator by my sin, and yet he chose by his grace to invade my life. Me responding in faith to that grace, to the name of Jesus, and me being radically transformed, not even the same human being anymore, and you're going to tell me that's not a miracle? See, as the redeemed, we have that testimony. Don't let someone look at you and say, wow, you're such a good woman, or hey, you're such a good man. Say, no, 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 there's nothing good in me other than Christ. That's your testimony. Your life is a living, breathing miracle. Do you see that? You may be a person that your testimony is, I've always been a really good person, and I found out one day that I was going to be good all the way to hell, and God radically transformed me. That may be your testimony. Speak that testimony. Point to Christ. Point to the source, because you have a testimony. You are evidence that the marvelous work of Jesus Christ is still working, and it's alive and well today. Don't put that away. Don't box that up. Don't hide that. We should take every opportunity that we have to share that message of our Lord and see Peter knows this. Peter knows that this situation is not one to be wasted, that the attention's in the wrong spot. Look at this again. What does he say? He says, why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we've made him walk? So he, he points to two things. This is not our power, and it's not our godliness that made this man walk. You need to understand, and this is, this is kind of difficult for us to wrap our minds around sometimes, but we have to understand that the move of God in someone's life does not mean that they're more holy than you if God didn't move in your life, or if God moves in your life and not theirs, you don't look down at them and say, oh, I must be more holy than they are. We're very tempted to do those things. But what we have to understand is that it is not, the move of God is not based on your piety. It's not based on your power, but instead strictly by the grace of God. That he is going to bless who he will. And we scream testimony to that. 
And I'm so thankful that the greatest testimony that we have is that as believers, we're victorious no matter what. So if I am healed, praise be to God. If I'm not, oh wait, I am going to be, praise be to God. That there's no loss in our narrative. There's no defeat in our narrative. It's only victory because of who Christ is. And so we need to understand that. This next thing that I noticed in this passage almost makes me laugh because it's one of those things that you look at and you're like, oh my goodness, that's so profound. Like it, it strikes you so interestingly when you read it. But the next thing that Peter does is he wonders. He says, why do you wonder at this? Why do you marvel at this, as some translations say? And you may say, how is that super profound? Well, here's why it's super profound. They've seen the work of Jesus. As a matter of fact, they've condemned the works of Jesus. They've heard the works of Jesus. They've seen the miracles of Jesus. Jesus has been saying that he is the Messiah. He's been saying, this is who I am. And if that's who he is, why are you shocked that he's still doing it? Why are you surprised that even in death, he's still moving if he is who he said he was? And it's like, why do you wonder that this is still happening? Why do you marvel at this? So don't look at me. This isn't something that's new. This isn't something you should be amazed at. This is Jesus continuing to be who he is, which is the Messiah. He, he's continuing to be who he said he was. And, and that's incredibly profound. That's huge that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And, and when we look at this, uh, we're going to see that everything else that we see, everything else that we're looking at is going to fit within that sphere of Jesus is who he claimed to be. So everything else we see is pointing to that. Everything else is screaming to that, that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Look at verses 13 through 15. It says, and this is Peter's sermon to the people, he says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. But he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses." Look at how this sermon starts. Remember that he is speaking to the men of Israel, right? It says so. And so his very first proclamation is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and the God of our fathers. What is he doing there? He's establishing that he's not bearing witness about another God. He's not coming in with this different religion to, to infiltrate Judaism. He's not bringing a message of a false God. He's not bringing a message that is different. He's establishing, I am talking about Yahweh. The very God that you're walking through this portico to go worship, that's the God that I'm speaking of. And then what he does after that is he addresses the person of Jesus in terms of who Yahweh is. You see this? This is amazing to me. So the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, he's talking about Yahweh, and then he says, glorified his servant, Jesus. This is where interesting things should begin to come up. Now, this word servant actually can be translated child, 
which is a big deal <laughs> that, that we're talking about the child of God, right? But think about what else this would have brought their minds to. I mean, even in 2023, as a, as a Christian, when I read the word servant of God, my mind cannot help but to run back to Isaiah. And could you imagine for these men, these religious men, how much more that would have been true? Remember, in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, it says, Behold my servant. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. So this would have rewound their minds back to Isaiah. And when you see this in Isaiah chapter 42, we start making that connection. But then as we keep going in Isaiah, it gets more and more profound with what Peter's about to bring up. Look at uh, chapter 52, verses 13 and 14. It says, behold, my servant again shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted as many were astonished at you. His appearance was marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Fast forward to Isaiah 53, starting with verse four, still talking about the suffering servant of God. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted and yet opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. He says, Jesus, we're fixing to find out the guy you handed over to Pilate to be killed. That was him. The one you've been looking for, the servant of God, the servant of Yahweh, that was him. You see how he's defining who Jesus is. And if your mind goes back to the story of the suffering servant, could you imagine the pictures that are starting to get put together in your head? Oh, wait, he was pierced. Wait a second. By his wounds, we're here. Wait, what have we done? I mean, think about the pictures here. Look at this. That phrase would have shifted their mind. And what does Peter do next? This is profound. He says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant, Jesus. And so the servant of, of Yahweh is Jesus, right? What does he say next? Whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. And when Pilate, when he had decided to release him, to turn him over, to let him go, you denied him. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you instead, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead, to this were all witnesses. Listen to this. And his name, by faith in his name, the one you killed, the suffering servant, it's by that name 
that he has made this man strong who you see now. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. This is powerful. Because that name, servant, the the servant of Yahweh, the servant of God, this would have meant so much to them that they would have begun putting together this picture that these pieces would have been to be brought to life. They would start being brought to life by the conviction of the Holy Spirit that was in that moment. And, And so we see these words as being weighty, as being heavy, the servant of God, the one that you killed. But it's not just the words that are heavy. The setting is amazing. This isn't the only time that we see Solomon's colonnade, Solomon's portico, Solomon's front porch, if you will, in Scripture. We know that Jesus actually was there and Jesus actually taught there. We see this in John chapter 10. Listen to this, verses 22 through 25. This doesn't even have to be preached. It preaches itself. Listen to this. This is Jesus in the Gospel of John. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking into the temple, similarity, in the colonnade of Solomon, same place. So the Jews gathered around him and said, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. He is still bearing witness to who he is to these people. They gave him up. They would rather a murderer be freed And yet he is still bearing witness to the Father to show them who he really is. And see, in John, after this instance, you guys may remember the rest of the story. Jesus actually goes on to say, I'm and the Father am one. We are one. And what does the crowd do? They start picking up stones. They're ready to kill him, but it wasn't their time yet. See, he, he showed them, he told them, but they wouldn't believe. But what would ultimately bear witness to who he is? His works. And what work are we seeing right here? A lame man and destitute, having faith in the name of Jesus and being made whole. What better picture of who Jesus is and what he came to do than that? This is weighty. In the very place where Jesus said the works that I do will bear witness about me is the same place he's still working miracles. It's the same place that the lame man started leaping and praising Yahweh. It's the same place that God is continuing to share the message out of his grace and out of his love to people who have denied and rejected him. And guys, that is a beautiful picture. What Peter's saying is, do you remember the suffering servant? 
Do you remember Isaiah? Do you remember this? That's who you put on the cross. That's who you turned over to Rome. That's who you killed. That's who you denied pardon when you had the opportunity to. The same man that stood here in this place and proclaimed that you won't listen to him. He's told them plainly. They won't listen. They won't hear, but these works are going to show who he is. That is how he's going to show this. And so the question that everyone should have been asking is how can he continue to do this in death because we killed him? And their answer could only be one answer at this point. It's because he is who he said he was. He's not dead. You didn't didn't kill an ordinary man. You didn't hand over an ordinary man over to Rome. You handed over the Messiah. And what's the point that Peter is making? You are all guilty. Now, there would have been people in that group that did not have eyes to hear, eyes to see, ears to hear, and had a hardened heart, and this would not have struck at all. But we'll find out next week that there are some that responded. Could you imagine that sense of crushing conviction in that moment? Man, the the Messiah that we've been waiting for, we we had the chance to to have him handed over to us and and free him. We, we, We had the chance to not see him die on that cross. We had, the, we had the chance to not crush him. We had the chance to not see his blood spilled. Man, what could have happened if, if, if Messiah were still here and we would have maybe stood up for him and fought for him? And that, that would have been running through your mind, right? You would have been thinking those things your whole life. You've been, you've been waiting. You've been hearing about this one to come. And Peter's before you saying, you killed him. You crushed him. How crushing is that message? But that's what makes what Peter said next so astounding. Look at this. Verse 17, he says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he fulfilled. This is interesting. Guilt has just been pronounced, right? A crushing guilt. You killed the Messiah. And and how does he follow this up? He says, you were ignorant. You acted in ignorance. Now, in our American mind, we're like, oh, he's giving them a pass. Because we look at people and say, oh, it's just a mistake. You're fine. You didn't know. You you know better next time. Let's keep going. No, no, no. (laughs) Not in their mindset. See, what you have to understand is that in their mind, in their custom, in their culture, uh, in Judaism, there were two different types of sin. There was sin that you committed unintentionally, and we see this addressed in Leviticus chapter 4 and 5. We see this uh, addressed in the book of Numbers in chapter 15 as you're reading through verses 22 through 29. We started saying how, seeing how atonement would be made for unintentional sin. But then when you get to verse 30... It kind of flips the coin on the other side. Listen to this. It says, but anyone who sins defiantly, that means I know what's right, and I'm going to continue sinning anyway. I'm going to continue this anyway. Whether native born or foreigner blasphemes the Lord, it must be cut off from the people of Israel because they have despised the Lord's words and broken his commands. They must surely be cut off and their guilt remains on them. So here's what you need to understand, is that in Hebrew thought, whether you acted willfully or in ignorance, you are guilty. You are wrong. Atonement 
uh, is your only chance out. You are like, you stand condemned. But the difference is, is that when you look at defiant sin versus ignorant sin, ignorant sin has the glimmer of hope in it. There's a glimmer of grace in it that there might be atonement made. And so when Peter says this, I can picture their ears perking up. Why is that? Well, because in the book of Leviticus, and even as you go through the other books, there is no atonement listed for what to do if you kill the Messiah. They they didn't know what that one was. So if there's chance for atonement, what is that atonement? But before Peter says that, he goes a step further. Look at this. Verse 18 says, but what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So not only does he say you acted in ignorance, he says, look, this thing that you designed for destruction, that the enemy wanted for destruction, this is the plan from the very beginning. You can't thwart my sovereign plan. And we may look at this, and in our mind, again, we may say, well, that deems them not guilty because it wasn't their fault. No, 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 no. It was completely their fault. It was also completely God's sovereign hand. They stand guilty, and God is sovereign. I didn't say or. I said and. See, I read one commentator that put it like this, and I had to kind of paraphrase it some. But Peter told them that God's plan would be fulfilled, and this was God's plan, but that did not negate the fact that he told them that they handed over Jesus, that they were worse than Pilate, that they traded the holy and righteous one for a murderer, that they killed the one who gave them life, that you're ignorant, that you don't understand the Bible, that you denied your privilege, and you're wicked So even though this is God's sovereign plan, that does not negate any of those eight truths. They are just as real as they were before that glimmer of hope was dropped. You murdered the Messiah. So is there any hope? Might you be restored? And verse 19 screams, yes. How might you be restored? How might sin be atoned for? Look at verses 19 through 21. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So what is his answer? How might atonement be made? Repent and turn back. When we look at the ESV, it it translates it turn back. There are other translations that that say turn to God. Um, A commentator that I quote here a lot, um, because I I like a lot of his stuff, um, a guy by the name of James Montgomery Boyce, um, he said that there's actually a picture associated with this. And he said the image that should be associated with this phrase is that in the Old Testament, you had cities of refuge that you could flee to, and you could find refuge in the city. You could find safety in these cities. And the picture that is being painted here is repent and flee to God for your refuge. 
That, that, that's the picture that's painted here. And it doesn't just stop there because Peter's going to go on to give them the result of repenting and turning back. Look at this, verse 19 again. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Now, in my mind for years, I had a picture of this in my head. And the picture of this that I had in my head happens every time I eat chicken tenders, right? As a good self-respecting Southerner, I have my big old cup of Hidden Valley Ranch, only Hidden Valley, you craft people. We'll talk later. My daughter's a craft person. I'm trying so hard. Raise up a child in the way they should go. I know, it's, it's on me. Um, but you have that big old cup of Hidden Valley Ranch, and you dip that tender in there, and you're like, here it goes. This is awesome. And what does that glob of ranch do? It goes, Bloop. and you're like, doggone it. Not again. And what do you do? You grab a napkin and you begin to try to blot out the stain, right? And that's the picture that I had always that this passage was talking about, that, that your sin is like a stain on your shirt and that God blots out the stain on your shirt. That's a good illustration. I mean, if you, if you think that way, that's a good one. I think so anyway. Um, but a couple of years ago, I found out that that's not actually what's being communicated here. It's much, much deeper than that. See, in their culture, in their time, when you heard blotted out, you would think about a piece of parchment. Now, a parchment was, you know, their paper, it was very expensive, it was difficult to come by. And so a lot of times they would write messages, they would write things in non-etching ink. It was acid-free. And so whenever they wrote on the paper, it wouldn't actually sink into the paper. And so what would happen is that if you needed to write another message, you could actually get a wet sponge or a wet rag and you could wipe that piece of parchment and that was called blotting it out, right? And so the message would be removed. And the picture that this is painting is that our lives are like a piece of parchment, right? And our sins are written on our life. But when it comes time for our life to be used for a different message, the old message is erased and the new one is written. Guys, that did something to my soul. Because I know that for Tommy Hinton, the message that was written on my parchment was one of sin, was one of rebellion, was one of brokenness, was being an enemy of God. But what was done through Christ is he blotted all of that out. That old message is gone. There's not even a remnant of it there anymore. I didn't have to wash my shirt twice. It's gone. I can't even see the remnant of it. But now in the place of all of those things, there's one word written, redeemed. There's a brand new message because my sin has been blotted out. And that was the hope that Peter was issuing to the very people that called for the Messiah to be put on the cross. How great is that gift? He goes on from there in verse 20, 19, says, repent and turn back that your sin may be blotted out. And it gets better that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Guys, if this isn't a beautiful picture of grace, I don't know what is. See, what we have to understand is that there is not a sin that we can commit that is too big that it can't be blotted out by the work of Christ. And after that, we can be brought a time of refreshing. And how, how, how badly does our world need to hear that message? 
How badly do they need to hear that testimony? Like we live in a world of weariness and brokenness and discontent and uneasiness and people thirsting for something more, people looking everywhere. If you want rest, if you want refreshing, I know where to find it. That's a message we should be proclaiming to the world. What Jesus has done in your life. Let's keep going. Verse 22. It says, Moses said, so what's happening here is Peter is fixing to go back and quote a prophecy from the book of Deuteronomy. So that's what's about to happen here. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, well, this is that covenant made, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised this servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. There's so much in this. We're going to only be able to skim the surface a little bit. But, but let's go back and look at that prophecy from Deuteronomy 18. Let, let's read that original prophecy together, which is found in verses um, 15 through 18. It says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, right? This is exactly what Peter is quoting. Um, Among you from your brothers, it is to him that you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, and you guys that were with us as we studied Exodus, remember this. Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see the great fire any more, least I die. And the Lord said to me, they're right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, so like Moses, among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. What is he doing? This is, this is so beautiful. He's pointing back again to the Old Testament to show that Jesus is who he said he was, And that the only way, the only way to escape from their wickedness, to be saved from their wickedness, to have atonement made, to live a life that's pleasing to God is to listen to the words that he said. What Peter's doing is he's taking all of this and putting a beautiful bow around the gospel for them. He's saying this is who Jesus is, and that's why he quotes Deuteronomy, and that's why we see Peter say in verse 23, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. This is a grave warning to repent. This is a grave warning warning to see who Jesus was and is. This is a grave warning to them that they would be cut off because of their sin. But in this, there is still a blessing that they would be spared from this promised judgment. If what? They would do exactly like the lame beggar did. 
respond in faith to the name of Jesus and be made whole by the power of that name. So that's where we end today. Next week, we'll see kind of how people responded, what that looks like. So when we look at Acts chapter 3, there's an overarching message of all of Acts chapter 3. There's a lame man at the beautiful gate that, that wanted something. He wanted alms. He wanted some means to buy food. He wanted food. He had a need. But God saw a need that was so much greater. And the need that was there wasn't one just for him. It was a need that all of Israel had. That they would see the suffering servant for who he really was. They would see Jesus for who he really is. And and the ultimate miracle in Acts chapter 3 isn't that the lame man walk. We only see that. um, We're short-sighting this miracle. The real miracle is that the power and the glory of the name of Jesus and the grace of God would continue to be revealed even to those who put Messiah on the cross. And that should bring good news to us today. That same grace that was extended to them is extended to us today. That same grace of God. That if you repent and if you flee to God, you may be saved. You will be saved. You shall be saved. There's a whole lot that we could talk about from this, but there's three things that, that I think that you can take home and think about and kind of chew on from this. And, and the first one is for those that are redeemed in this room. Use the miraculous work of Christ to point back to him. Use what God has done in your life to point back to him. Don't let the miracle of the transformation that's been done in you not point to who Jesus is. Don't let that happen. Boldly proclaim the gospel through that. And, and, and like I said earlier, I know that some of us may say that we don't have miracles to show. I've always been a pretty good person. And like I said before, <laughs> you could have been good all the way to hell if not for the grace of God reaching into your life, the conviction brought by the Holy Spirit, the grace of God revealed to you so that you might respond in faith. That's a miracle. It's a miracle of the love of God that he would do that. I think the second thing is that, you know, our passage talked about how Jesus is going to go be with the Father for a time until he comes back and all things are restored. I think that we remember that all things are made, are being made, will be made new in who Jesus is. That our walk of sanctification, we are constantly being renewed. We're being sanctified. We're, we're being drawn to holiness through that. But one day, all of this creation will be restored. And we should live in confidence of that. We should see that in this passage, that, that Jesus goes for a while, but will come back and restore all things. No matter how bad the world around us gets, we should live in hope of that. And not just an empty hope, but an assurance of that. It will be because it already has been done. It was done with the death, the burial, and the resurrection. It is completed. It's just an already not yet. We're just waiting on it now. 
But the last thing for those of you in this room that have not responded to the grace of God, and here it is, you have not out the grace of God. You may look at your life and say, how can God, a holy and righteous God, accept a wretch like me? Because he's good. The Bible says that for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whosoever, not those that are good enough, but whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's good news. But don't forget that you're guilty. You must have atonement made. You know, I think about the Roman road and how, how beautifully the gospel is articulated in it and how you know, when you look at Romans chapter 3 and um, you, you start seeing that all people, Jews, Gentiles, everyone has sinned. There's no one good. There's not a single one that's good. And we hear that condemning message and we move on to Romans chapter 6 and we find out that the wages of sin is death. And you hear these things and you feel them crushing on you, weighing on you because you know that you're a sinner. You know that you've rebelled against God. You know that you've pushed back against them. And then we start seeing the hope. We get to Romans chapter 5 and we found out that God showed such great love for us that while we were yet sinners, he sent Christ. And then our minds get the circle back to Romans 6, and we find out that though the wages of sin are death, the gift of God, the free gift of God, is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And praise be to God that we move beyond there. We get to Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, that says that if you confess Jesus with your lips and believe in your heart, then you might be, no, you shall be saved. And I don't see any conditions on any of this of how bad you were before. I don't see that this is only for those kids that were raised in a Christian home. I don't see this as people who found this out before they became adults. I see that this is true for the 75, 80, 85, 90, 100, 105-year-old that lived their entire life in rebellion and one day by the grace of God see the error of their ways and respond to that. This is for that person too. None of us have out God's grace until we breathe our last breath not responding. That's the message here. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And it gets even more beautiful than that because you get to Romans chapter 5, verse 1. It says that since we have then made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace. How can you possibly have peace in this life? Because you know by faith that your sins have been blotted out. That old message is gone. There's a brand new message on your life now. You have peace with God because of that. And then Romans 8, 1, because of that, there is no condemnation on me anymore because I belong to Jesus Christ. That is the good news of the gospel. And nothing can separate you from that because Romans 8 tells me so. That nothing can separate me from the love of God. So lost in this room, you are guilty. And I say that with a smile because of the message of grace that is afforded to you this morning. So I think that there's two ways that we can respond to this message. And and, and we're going to open up both of these this morning. 
The first way is for those of us that are redeemed to show a grateful heart and remember what the Lord has done in celebrating the Lord's Supper. We have the elements out for us to take. Remember that this is only for the redeemed in this room. The Bible's very specific about that. And there's, there's warnings about it. it act, the Bible actually says to, to, that, that you should look and examine your life, make sure that there's no unconfessed sin in your life, and that you should take time to, to deal with the Lord before this. Make sure that there's no sins uh, among you and your brothers that aren't, con, that aren't confessed, and, and do that. And then once you are cleared, once the Holy Spirit has released you to do so, you come and take these elements with both somberness and joy, Somberness of the life that was given for you, but joy that it was given for you. And take of this, remember the body broken for you, the blood shed for you. And take this and remember. But there's a whole group left out of this. It's those who are still pronounced guilty. Those who still have written on their life, sinner, broken, separated from God. I want you to know that this morning, if the Lord's convicting you and you want to know more about what it means to repent, you want to know more about what it means to flee to Christ, if you want to know about this peace that's brought through the blotting out of sin, if you want to know more about what restoration is and, and, and what quenching thirst in him is, we're going to have some folks over to the side of our prayer banner that would love to talk with you about that. And in this room, if you are redeemed and you just want somebody to pray with you about something, we're going to have some folks over there to pray with you about anything that you want a brother or sister to stand in agreement with you. So I'm going to pray for us. You spend some time with the Lord as the Lord releases you or convicts you or moves you. Move in response. Come and take the elements. Find someone to pray with you. Find someone to talk to but let's respond to this amazing, transformative word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, it's so incredibly convicting when we hear about our sinfulness, our brokenness, when we hear about our rebellion, when we hear about how we're severed from you because of sin, but you, in your grace and love, bring us a hope that is incomprehensible. Lord, I pray this morning that the believer in this room is still convicted every single day by sin, by your Holy Spirit, drawn to holiness and righteousness, empowered by your Holy Spirit, but does so understanding that they have a brand new identity. They have a different message on their life. They're not even the same person anymore. So Lord, as we wrestle with sin in our lives, let us know who we really are and whose we really are. 
and that you love us enough to send the power of your Holy Spirit to help us and to strengthen us and you love us enough to convict us and move us and not leave us where we are. But Lord, those of us in this room that do not know you, Lord, I pray that today is the day that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you bring conviction to their hearts. Lord, that you show them that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that they stand guilty before you. But that a new message can be written on their heart because of what Christ has done. Lord, I pray that this morning is the morning that you proclaim to someone in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. Lord, we want to see an over and over evidence of who you are still working as more and more come to repentance, more and more flee to you and more and more come to know you. Lord, I thank you again for your word. And I thank you for the sacrifice of your son that brings the ultimate atonement for every sin. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.